Chapter 26. B.C. After Calvary? Commences with a quote by Jesus Christ. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. It's all very enlightening reading about the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy. But due to their bygone position in both religious and chronological history, they beg one significant question. Does that system still apply to us in the 21st century? Or is all this talk about blessings and curses just that, B.C.? Well, there are certainly plenty of references to blessings and even curses in the New Testament. However, there seems to be a change of rhythm, a different spectrum of colours shining through the window after Christ physically entered the room and gave his life for ours. There's something strikingly beautiful about the post-resurrection blessings that just wasn't as obvious before that creation-shattering Sunday morning. And there's something less frightening about the curses too. I'm not even going to try to summarise the libraries of arguments that have been written on whether or not the law, however you might define it, is still in place this side of Calvary. I will simply say that I believe it is. That is, I believe that Christ's followers should still aim, through his power, to keep the principles on which the Ten Commandments are built. Why? Because Christ asked us to. In John 14 verse 15 he said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Christ did seem to add something to the law though, didn't he? A sort of eleventh commandment. In John 13 verse 34 he said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Of course, on first reading there doesn't appear to be much that's really new about this command. It simply summarises commandments 5 through 10 into a single phrase, a single principle. But in the context of the struggles I was facing in my blessings and curses journey, they became very important words to me. Regardless of the degree to which we might personally believe that the Ten Commandments themselves are still in force, this side of Calvary, I think we can all agree that the very foundation of the commandments is love. So, do blessings flow when we love one another? And curses when we don't? Certainly. Christ also supported this blessings come from loving theme when talking to a teacher. And this was not just any teacher. He was an expert in the law. We read about it in Luke 10, 25-28. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. The lawyer was simply quoting Moses' words of the law from 1500 years earlier. He brought the old into the new, albeit still pre-Calvary. In Deuteronomy 6.5 we read, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And in Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbour as yourself. And Christ told this first century lawyer that following these love principles of the Old Testament law was a very important part of his desire to inherit eternal life. Now, just in case we're tempted to ignore the wisdom shared by the lawyer because he wasn't a convert, and to ignore his original sources in Leviticus and Deuteronomy because they're from the Old Testament, Jesus showed us the application of the Old Testament law in this separate encounter, 
in Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While studying this law versus love topic, I came to a point in my life where I really began to wonder whether I was supposed to be making a choice about whether I needed to live as Mr. Law or Mr. Love. I came across people referring to Sinai theology and Calvary theology as diametrically opposed views, and I struggled to know which one to choose. Calvary theology seemed to be the logical choice because it was the more recent event. But in the back of my mind was the scripture, I, the Lord, do not change. And I knew it was found right in Malachi 3, the very chapter that had launched me into this whole blessings and curses journey. So if God doesn't change, then why would the theology of God change? As I studied deeper, it became increasingly clear that some people interpret the Old Testament as being all about the law, but they see the New Testament as being all about love. Their basic assumption is that it all changed at Calvary. After much prayerful searching, I came to conclude that while there truly were some universe-shattering changes at Calvary, and thank God for that, there was no clear-cut paradigm shift from law to love. Call me double-minded, but I actually came to the conclusion that both the law and love are eternal, unchanging expressions of God. In fact, I think they are both expressions of God's love. I also want to share a couple of comments from Paul before I reveal how all this related to my journey. In 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17 we read, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The all scripture to which Paul referred was the Torah, basically what we now call the Old Testament. And although Paul was an AD preacher, he certainly encouraged the Christ followers of his day to learn from the principles of the BC writings. In Romans, he again ties the law and love together. In Romans 13, verses 8 to 10, we read, Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. Moses, Jesus and Paul each wanted to be very clear about the foundation on which the law is built. Love which is the exact same foundation on which we are to build our lives. They also wanted us to be sure that we put our all into it. So here's a key secret to handling our blessings today, two millennia after Christ's life on earth. Love God absolutely and completely with everything you have and everything you are. Heart, soul, strength, 100%. Car, house, family, money, 100%. 
Talents, appearance, education, intellect, 100%. Passions, energy, and time, 100%. And love your neighbor as yourself. Christ's life perfectly embodied this love principle and showed us how it directly affects our lives. One of my favorite gospel stories occurred very early in Christ's ministry. It involved a group of hard-working men, their business assets, and their hearts. It's in Luke 5, 1-11. In light of this chapter's chronology-focused topic, it's also interesting that a remarkably similar event happened very late in Christ's ministry, after his resurrection. It's recorded in John 21, 1-14. The first event went something like this. For some weeks, maybe months, Jesus had been wandering through the villages and towns of Judea, spreading hope and healing. One morning he found himself standing by the Sea of Galilee, with a fast-growing crowd of people pressing close to hear him. Along the shore, some fishermen with whom Jesus had previously spent time had pulled up their boats and were washing their nets. The crowd was growing quickly, and in order to better project his voice, and to avoid being swamped by the people, Jesus asked one of the fishermen, Simon, who was called Peter, if he could use his boat as a sort of floating stage. Peter agreed, and Jesus sat comfortably in the boat to continue his discourse. When Jesus felt that he'd said enough, he asked Peter to take the boat further from shore and lower his nets for a catch. Peter was tired and totally disheartened because he and his business partners had actually spent the entire night trying to catch fish and had returned with nothing more than sad faces and sore backs. Not only that, but daylight was certainly not the hour to be trying to catch fish with nets in the clear waters of the lake. However, he had come to love and respect Jesus. So he replied, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Peter the fisherman, with no apparent prior evidence of Jesus' fishing ability, agreed to give his time, his energy, and his business assets into Christ's hands. He obeyed and was blessed. On pulling the net in, Peter and his brother Andrew were astonished to see that it was full. No, it was overflowing with fish. The net began to break, and they had to call their other business partners, James and John, to bring a second boat to help them. The second boat was loaded to the gunwales too. Both boats were close to sinking. On seeing these incredible, unimaginable blessings, Peter, the lifetime fisherman, realized that he was in the presence of the Son of God, and he fell to his knees in worship and fear. Jesus said to him, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Immediately, Peter, Andrew, James, and John pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed Christ. Have you ever wondered what would have happened if Peter's reaction was to start counting the profits of this and future similar massive catches? How would you have reacted? John 21 describes how Jesus repeated this miracle after his resurrection, by which time Peter knew very clearly that following Christ was not going to make him the wealthiest fisherman in the market. Yet Peter's reaction was the same. He followed Christ. Jesus certainly showed us that love, and its natural response of obedience brings various types of blessings, sometimes even more than we can handle. In Luke 6, 38, he said, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. 
for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus commenced his ministry with a miracle that blessed those who loved and obeyed. In Mark 11, in the very last week of Jesus' life on earth, he again performed a miracle, though on the surface this one seemed to be very out of character. On a morning walk from Bethany to Jerusalem, Jesus cursed a seemingly innocent fig tree because it had no fruit, and he was hungry. Note, though, that it had plenty of leaves, which, for the figs around Jerusalem, should have been a sign that its fruit were coming ready for harvest. But, even though we're told that it was not the season for figs, it was bare. The tree, like the Pharisees of the time, had all the outward appearances of being fruitful, but on closer inspection, it was barren. Similarly, the wealthy Pharisees looked very pious, very religious, very respectable and very blessed. But beneath their outward display, they were nothing more than whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. The Jewish people, historically God's chosen and more blessed than any others, had stored up their blessings instead of passing them on. So, like the barren fig tree, they had brought curses on themselves. 36 years later, in 70 AD, Jerusalem was completely destroyed. In Matthew 25, Jesus again makes it very clear that the universal law of blessings and curses will be in force right through until his return. He concludes the parable about the sheep and the goats with an instruction to the goats, those who had not ministered to him in the person of the hungry, the thirsty, the strangers, the raggedly dressed, the sick and the imprisoned. In verse 41, he said, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why were they cursed? It's very simple. Because they didn't have enough of his love in their hearts to pass on the blessings that God had given them. Writing about 15 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, James, the half-brother of Jesus, tells us, Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. B.C. is A.D. too.